Here we are now with another episode of the Andrew Lake Podcast. My name is Dosta, and today I'd like to talk about gurus. I'd like to talk about some of the things that I've noticed they all have in common. And maybe you've done this yourself. You've started to see the correlations. You've started to see the patterns. Because if you listen to enough people talk, people who we might call as leaders or gurus or teachers or masters or public intellectuals, whatever term you'd like, if you listen to enough of them and you listen to enough of what they're saying, then you can start to see the connections. You can start to see the similarities. So I'd like to share what I've found from listening to gurus, the things they all have in common. One thing all gurus do is they spend a portion of their time addressing the student-teacher relationship or the student-teacher dynamic. And it's also all the other terms that are related to this student-teacher. It could be master-disciple, or leader or follower, or guru and student, or like Zen master and the devotee. Whatever term it is, whatever words it is, it's different for slightly different because of different contexts. Different cultural backgrounds have, different times in history have different terms, but they all really mean the same thing, which is why is there someone up on the stage sitting on a big fancy chair while there are these people? sitting down in the audience, listening to them. Why is it me talking now and not you? And all gurus spend at least part of their time, in different proportions, addressing this dynamic. And they all have slightly different things to say. But a common thing is that, well, they really have to. Now, when a teacher is talking, they can teach about things. There's a whole variety of subjects that they can talk about. Or they can give techniques. Or they can answer questions. But there's this thing of how much is getting through to the audience, how much is being understood, 
and the guru knows that there is a high chance that he's going to be misunderstood, he or she. There's this difference in worldviews. There's this mismatch of understanding that they have to address. And usually by the time they are on the stage and there are people sitting in the audience, then the people who are sitting in that audience are at least open-minded and patient enough to be able to hear some of what the guru is saying. That's at least a start. The people who are not open to the guru, well, they leave, they stop listening. They tune out. Or even worse, they start hating on the guru and they start talking bad about the guru. But for the followers of the guru, that's at least a start, that's a foot in the door, but it's not the be-all and the end-all. There's still this thing of the guru is pointing out the resistance in the student. The guru is pointing out where they might misunderstand him. The guru is pointing out what is the difference between you and me? What is the difference between the person up there and the person down in the audience? And how strange it is that we all, that we find ourselves in this situation where some human beings are made as leaders and others are made as followers. And this discussion can broaden out for a lot of gurus, which is getting into how do humans organize themselves. That would be a broader thing of the guru addressing why is he on stage and why is there someone in the audience. And then there's the bigger thing of how do humans organize themselves within collectives. What models of collective humans are there? Which ones are effective? Which ones have certain results? Which ones what what are the what are the conditions and what are the what is the quality of being with different ways in which humans have decided to organize themselves collectively? So the guru will not only address the student, disciple, guru, master relationship and that dynamic, but they'll also talk about things in history like communism or Nazism or democracy or certain communes or certain institutions or certain communities. And all these words are simply words for a collection of humans and what that looks like. Another thing all gurus do is they, and this is related to addressing the student-guru relationship, 
is that they say, I am not your guru. And in fact, I think there's a Tony Robbins motivational series or a movie, and he titled it, I am not your guru. Now, the guru not only points out the differences between him and his followers, but he also knows that the whole thing is a joke. Deep down, he knows there's no difference between him and his followers. The things he found for himself, he found in his own way. And the logical conclusion that all gurus make is that, well, if I can find it for myself, anyone can find it for themselves. If I can do it, anyone can do it. Now, this is sort of a a cartoon way of talking because, of course, not everyone can do everything. There are differences. And you see immediately how it starts because... Say, say, I tell, say I tell you, you can work it out for yourself. And you say, okay, I believe it. How? <laughs> you can see right there, it's like, you can do it for yourself, but you need help for how to do it for yourself. So all gurus know that there's this, Alan Watts has a nice way of putting it. He says, you you get your picket pocked, pocket picked by the guru and then he sells you back your own watch. He gives you what he took from you, which you always had for yourself. And that circular sort of trick, the gurus are aware of. They know this. And not in a malicious way. It's not a sort of con artist way. It's accepting how things are and how they just have to be this way and venturing into that game, knowing that it's a game. And really, a guru can play that game and be okay with it. Because they know it's a game. They know it's just a joke. This whole thing is a big joke. And really, how much credit can you give to one person? A guru is just going to say what they want to say, and the people are going to respond and organize themselves around that person, according to them. Every relationship is 50-50. And I can understand why from some stages of psychological development or where where you're at with your awareness and with what you can see, a guru looks like a con man. A guru looks like a... uh, you, You shouldn't trust him. You shouldn't... You shouldn't be listening to him because he's just trying to trick you into believing what he believes or thinking the way that he thinks. And in a way, he is, but with good intentions. He's trying to trick you into busting out of your limiting beliefs. He's trying to trick you into 
having a different perspective on life. He's trying to trick you into having a, a bigger, a deeper and richer receptivity to people and to ideas and to how life can be. So this thing of, I am not your guru, you don't need me to be your leader, is a recurring theme in gurus. Another thing gurus do is, this may seem at first to be quite shallow or surface level, but it runs quite deep, is they talk slowly. They talk softly. If you listen to a really good speaker, there's a time when they are really speaking clearly with a very soft and warm tone of voice in a very easy-to-understand small words. And the reason they do this is to bring clarity It's to bring peace. It's to have non-violence happening as they talk. The mind is a chattering, busy, chaotic thing for many people. And there is an excitement to that. There is a thrill to that, as I have discovered for myself. But many gurus know that people just want some relief. They want some calmness. They want to relax and let things be soft. There is something violent about speaking. Speech is an outward directed phenomenon. It's a it's an urge to push onto the world. It's an urge to create. It's an urge to bust something open. And any word that is uttered comes with a drama to it, however subtle, however simple, however delicate it may seem. All words have a drama to them. And this is especially clear if you understand speech as opposed to silence or talking as opposed to listening. Listening is completely passive. 
It's receiving. It's feminine. It's taking something in. Listening is something that can nourish you. It can fill you up. And the more quiet you are, the more you can listen. There's something extremely peaceful about listening. So when I say gurus speak quietly and slowly and softly, of course that's a generalization. And when people speak, they all have a variety in their tone and pace and all sorts of things. But maybe that's a distinguishing factor of the sorts of people you want to listen to. And maybe that's the difference between a guru and a public speaker who's not a guru or an entertainer. Maybe, maybe not. We don't really need to get into that. But this thing of quietness and simplicity in the speech of a guru is for non-violence. It's for clarity. And it's for lulling you into peace of mind, which so many people long for, so many people want. Another thing gurus do is they spend time contradicting ideas or definitions. For a guru to use words, he knows that words have been corrupted. So, to speak and to use certain words, a portion of their time is going to be spent redefining words. They're going to be spending time saying what is not a word. They are going to contradict an idea. They're going to illustrate how an idea appears. And then they're going to say that this is wrong. Actually, this is the new idea. For example, something like love. Now, the word love seems to be every which way I turn my head these days. Love is everywhere in our culture, in our consumerism, in our advertising, in our businesses, in our entertainment, in our cultural activities. This word love is all over the place. And there's so many bad examples of love. That's not real love. So a guru has to, if he uses this word love, he needs to spend a certain amount of time illustrating what this word means. And you can get a picture of this if you listen to 
Krishnamurti. I mean, I don't know if Krishnamurti spent much time talking about love. I'm sure he's addressed it at some point. And in a sense, Krishnamurti came up with these uh, phrases, these words which were unique, a word like choiceless awareness. So he would be putting two words together, and that was his solution to the corruption of words. It was to create these new these this this juxtaposition of choice choiceless as one word and then awareness and then he'd be talking about these things and building them up and by putting these weird words together in this juxtaposition he could sort of bypass love is a love is a tough one to go after because it's so broad and there's so much like to really build a strong to really illustrate deeply what love is, well, first of all, love has to be real to you. And that, that sort of gets to my next point, which is the, the personality or the personal sense of a guru. But without getting too far off on that tangent, the point is that gurus have to make their own definitions. And some Krishnamurti talks, it seems like, all he's really doing is choosing a word and then building up for some time what that word means and also saying how it's been used wrong in the past. And then he moves on to the next word. And then you string together. So it's like a, a cube cognitive structure. There are these points which are equally related. And he builds them up within themselves. It's just like a list of definitions. It's possible to make a speech just out of definitions. And I, I even think there's a nice Sam Harris podcast where he's talking to someone and just by happenstance, it turned out to be that structure. They had a list of words and they went through and they said, well, what is the definition of this word? How do you define this word? Now, in a definition, there's, there can be a lot of things. You can say what's wrong. You can leave examples. You can change the context. You can say how it can mean different things in different contexts. And in this Sam Harris podcast, he was talking about stupidity and complexity. And these words are simple on the surface, but when you really dig into their definitions, they can paint quite a picture. Another thing gurus do in answering questions is they contradict the the words that the the questioner has used so they not only contradict ideas and they contradict definitions of words but they contradict the people who are asking their questions and you can see this if someone gets up and asks a guru a question there's a pattern where the guru says the exact opposite thing with a, with, a, with a new word, 
And somehow that's this magical aha moment of this is this is the right answer. And I remember watching a Sadhguru video and someone gets up and says, How do you how do you achieve enlightenment? And his answer was Enlightenment is not an achievement. <laughs> enlightenment is a homecoming. <laughs> so on the the reason that has so much wit is because he could have answered the question of how to become enlightened. Well, here is how. How do you do this? Here's the answer. But instead he went one deeper. He he contradicted that that term and he just hit it back in the face of the question and it's a it's a really just sparky moment of of wit and insight and that's a common pattern of this contradiction in the question it comes up again and again in many different forms gurus also contradict themselves and they know this They're aware of this. Because words mean certain things at certain times in certain contexts. If you listen to someone long enough and they're talking enough, there's this point where you say, well, he said this over here and then he said this over here. This doesn't make sense. He's contradicting himself. How do you put this two and two together? But really, the context is what's defining whether it's a contradiction or not. And if you're listening to a guru and you're seeing contradictions, actually, you need to go just beyond that. It is a point in growth. It means you're starting to see more connections. You're starting to put more pieces of the puzzle together. Whereas before you wouldn't see how they are related. You wouldn't be trying to relate those two things and now you are. So in a sense it's a step in the right direction. It's a big step. But you need to go beyond that. You need to see, well, when a guru contradicts themselves, they know it. And if you said, hey... This guru, if you pulled him up on it, and this has happened, this has happened to Sadhguru, this has happened to Osho, this has happened to Sam Harris. All these sorts of gurus have, at some point, been confronted. They say, "Well, how do you square this?" And sometimes, well, depending on who it is, it can be like. You know, the the easy answer or the get-out-of-jail-free card is I don't try to make sense. I'm not here to make sense. I'm not here to have no contradictions. I'm here to accept everything and say what is true for each moment, what is true for now. And that's why there are contradictions in what I say. And then other other times they try and untangle it in different ways. You can actually make a connection 
and resolve a contradiction not by not by stepping out of it but by bridging it and the difference there is well how would you redefine the words so that they can fit together and how would you put those two ideas together Another thing gurus do is they give long-winded answers. They talk for a long time. It's always that the question or the student asks something and it's only a few sentences long. And then this guru goes off on this big lecture for an hour and a half, two hours. And the reason they do that is because they're trying to get at illustrating webs. They're trying to get at something that is beyond the words. And they know that words are bubbles on waves and waves need to happen over and over again before you realize you're at the edge of the ocean. It might even be that when there's a person asking a question, and it's a long question, you'll notice that if you're listening to this, and it's your favorite guru, there's this thing of hurry up, stop talking, just ask the question and be done with it. The best questions are always really short questions and they get to the point and they trigger a lot for the guru and they can talk a lot about it because you don't come to hear a guru to hear what the disciples are asking. (laughs) No one wants to hear what they're saying. We want to hear what the guru is saying. We like to hear his tone of voice. We like his phrases. We're here for the the personality as much as for the content. So expect long-winded answers from gurus. Because a guru doesn't think in yes and no. They can think that way at times, but... Generally speaking, usually a guru, they they say things which are all connected to other things and they take their time in explaining how they're connected and what they look like. There's this sort of pattern of the guru, which is like a general life pattern. And it goes something like this. Think of how many people you know which would fit this category or this mode of life story or this life structure, which is 
They turn up at school and they get kicked out of school. Or they don't go to school. And then somehow they manage to be top of the class. They do the exams, but they don't go to any of the classes. And they somehow beat everyone in their year. And then they go on and they read 10,000 books. And after reading 10,000 books, they go three years without talking. They lock themselves in a room and stare at a white wall day in, day out for three years. And then when they come out of this solitude and they start talking speak and, and speaking publicly, the people that hear them speak, many of them have this intuition or this urge to say, you, you know what, now that I've heard you speak, I'm going to give you some money. I'm going to give a large sum of money to you. I'm going to open my wallet and just hand it over because of what you said. Now, there are many people who fit that life story. Osho is one of them. And in another sense, Sam Harris is one of them. In a cartoon way of speaking, in a roughly speaking kind of way. Sam Harris has had his years of studying meditation. He's read all his books. He's got his intellect. And now when he speaks, there is a donation basis. There is a crowdfunding, we call it now. There's a give what you feel thing happening with his following. And Ken Wilber was the same. Ken Wilber didn't go to school at all because he wasn't interested. And he had a friend in his class, which he said, the day before an exam, tell me when there's an exam the next day. And Ken Wilber would just turn up, do the exam and then leave. And somehow he managed to beat everyone. Of course, he's probably read more than 10,000 books. And he went into his years of solitude. He was living in a cabin in the woods by himself for years. And when he emerged from that, he had his four quadrants integral theory, his gift to humanity, his magnus opum. And the Dalai Lama fits this as well. The Dalai Lama doesn't really have donations as much. Like money, the money thing of I want to give you money, that's a separate thing. Like pledging to a cause and putting money in together to build something, an institution around a leader, that's that's something in and of itself. Like Alan Watts would have, Alan Watts was given money not so much as donations, but it was more like, I will pay you to be on this show. It was more like a gig for him. I'll come on your radio program if you pay me, or I'll speak at your convention 
if you pay me, or I'll come to this if you pay me. And Tony Robbins has his events which he creates, so it's like a ticket. It's not so much a, I will listen to you and then I directly afterwards feel like giving you money. It's not always that black and white, whereas whereas in in some cases in history... If you think of someone like Jesus, the effect that he had on the people around him. Now, there's this story of Jesus saying, leave your fishing rod, leave your business, leave your home, leave your family, and follow me. And the people who he said that to, they simply did it. They simply laid it down and submitted. Now, on the surface, it's like, well, what is wrong with you? How can you leave your family behind? But on a deeper level, it's that Jesus was talking about something beyond those things, something of value that was could not be found in just family life, homely life, or business life. And there was so much of it apparent in Jesus that the people who heard him speak could easily recognize that he could hand that over to them. Another one that comes to mind is Ram Das. Now, he has his institution, he has his community, he has his way of collectively organizing people. I believe it's called the Be Here Now Network. And Ram Das has been through all the, the universities, top of the class. He's read his 10,000 books or so. And he's had his years and years of solitude. He's done all the spiritual practices. He's done the chanting. And then he comes out and he has the charisma. He has the, the brilliance of speaking of the of the beyond of telling the stories so this this pattern is common to all gurus in in its own way in their own way there's a there's a variation of it and how they flesh it out and how it actually looks but it's common for gurus to have that sort of Top of the class, 10,000 books, years of solitude, and then people donate money. And you can see it in, in many of the gurus. And there's one more thing I'd like to share about what all gurus have in common, and that is the personality they all have their own individual personality and they know that their insight and their truth is not devoid of personality. And surfaces, while superficial, are still part of the picture. And one person that comes to mind is Terence McKenna. Now, I don't know if you could really call Terence McKenna a guru, 
He's more of a public thinker or a public speaker. But by some definitions, in some ways, you could call him a guru. You could call him a man of insight. And the thing I like most about Terence McKenna, I may have said this before, but I'll say it again, but it's the way that he speaks. It's his tone of voice. It's his inflections. And he's just stimulating. He's just interesting. Whether he's right or wrong, we can have a debate about stoned ape theory. That was one of his staples of the apes came and had mushrooms on the Sahara Desert, the Sahara Plains. And that was a break in human evolution of consciousness and gave way to the birth of language. And we can discuss that. That's, that's a really fun conversation to have. But more to the point is just the person of Terence McKenna. The look in his eyes. His tone of voice. His enthusiasm. And I really like this moment where he says, if you have the dream world and reality, then you're trying to square in on something. What does he say? Let me get this right. He says there's the dream world and your awake world. So you're triangulating reality with two points there. But if you have the dream world, awake world, and DMT then you're triangulating it with three prongs. You're honing in on it with three prongs. And of course, Terence McKenna has said many things about DMT and the psychedelic experience. And whether you're interested in that or not depends. Well, it's more like his his personality you can get the impression that when he's talking about psychedelics, he's talking about a common thing that if anyone does DMT, then this is what happens. But he knows that that's not necessarily the case. There's him talking from his experiences on DMT. And his personal experiences... And the impressions they've made on him bear weight on the discussion. It's not just a matter of we're talking about this objective thing that is the same for all people. It's not completely impersonal. So the the personal and the impersonal is something that a guru has to address. It's something that a, well, it's something, it's something they need to contend with. It's the, the personal and the impersonal. It, there's no way for them to speak without using their own mouth. There's no way to talk without using your own voice. And 
Well, some gurus would say there's there's self-deception. They're aware of their... They, they contend with their own worldview. Now, some gurus would take this all the way and say it's completely personal. They take it to the full extreme and they say, everything I say is entirely my own perspective. It's entirely my own experience. And you have this phrase from Jesus saying, I am the way, the truth, and the light. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now what's happening there is he's realized that it's all personal. Everything is personal to him. He's the only one that can say something that's true and every word he says is true because that's how he's broken out into wakefulness. That's his awakening experience. And you can go the other way, which is that everything is impersonal. Some gurus might say that every experience is possible for everyone. And they say, I'm nobody. And Krishnamurti would say, oh, I'm just a speaker. Ram Das would say, oh, I'm just a, a voice of God. It's not me, it's God speaking. I'm nobody. So that's an example of, I don't, I don't know if these people really fit entirely into this, these two extremes, but you can see there by illustrating this, there's this difference between the personal and the impersonal, and that's something that all gurus have in common. It's something they have to contend with, and it's something you have to be aware of too, is when you're listening to someone, well, how personal is it? And there's something quite powerful in getting down and personal. And that's why there's something about being in the presence of a guru, being in the same room as them. And by this, from what we've been speaking about so far, the idea is like there's this famous person that you have to go and meet, and it's this rare opportunity. But really, when it comes to personal truth, you must realize that everyone has that. And you can go and find insightful speakers without having someone that's quite famous. It might not be that they're famous. So to go and meet someone and to realize that there's people in your life, the people that you know personally, the things they say have a much deeper impression on you than the people that are just speaking up on the pedestal the people who are on the internet or the people who are public speaking, 
when you're in the crowd and they're up there, that's one thing. But the people who are in your life, the people who know you personally, now the power of someone who knows you personally runs very deep. Because you know they can say things that are true and that really hit home to you. And really, your friends should be your gurus. Your intimate partner, your loved one, should be your guru. And really, there's no end to that. I remember someone asked Osho once, well, who who is your guru? You know, we're all sitting around here listening to you. And you keep saying you're not so special. Who is your master? And he tells a parable of a boy with a candle. And the candle gets lit. And Osho says, you see the candle. And you see the flame. But where did it come from? And the boy blows out the candle. And says, you see the smoke. You don't see the flame. But where did it go? There was a man in a river, and he was struggling to get out. He was drowning. This man was with his dog, his pet dog. And in an instant, the dog jumped into the river and saved the man. He was able to grab him in an act of bravery, in an act of thinking on his feet. The dog saved its master. And there was a time when there was a robber that went into Osho's house. And Osho was able to accept him as someone who needed to stay there. And every night the robber would go out and try to rob things, and he would come back unsuccessful. And Osho would ask, Why? Why do you keep going out? You always fail. And for months the robber would do this, and every time he'd say, Next time will be my lucky time. Next time I'll be able to do it. This was Osho's answer to the question of who was your guru? And he said, the little boy with the candle was my guru. The dog jumping into the river was my guru. The robber, someone who is often shunned in society. The robber is the the low life of society. And his persistence His lesson of persistence made him a guru to Osho. And Osho said that if you make existence your guru, if you make every moment a lesson to you, then you need no person. You need no public speaker. And that story has always stuck with me. That answer has been something that I've remembered, 
really made an impression on me. I wish I could do it myself. <laughs> I wish I was uh, better at opening to existence. And I've had my time, I've had my moments. Let's not make this about me. <laughs> Let's not make this personal. <laughs> so, I think that covers just about everything. I mean, these gurus, they do have things in common. They they address the master-disciple relationship. They talk slowly and softly. They contradict ideas and they redefine words. They give long-winded answers. They talk for a long time. They say, I'm not your guru. They say, I don't need to be here. They know the joke of it. And they have this this life structure of, you know, 10,000 books, three years of, years of silence, and this relationship to money, which to the rest of us seems quite obscure, quite strange, quite hard to understand. And they contend with this personal and the impersonal. They're aware of this thing within themselves, which they can't get out of, even though they have transcended it. A guru, well, I mean, we can distinguish differently between a guru and a master and a teacher. Like a teacher is someone who's just who's got a bit of knowledge and they've had a few little experiences and they've got the nerve to get up and blab a mouth about it. That's the category I put myself in. I'm a teacher, not a guru or a master. A guru is, a real guru is a master who also has the ability to speak clearly about their enlightenment or their experiences. But a real master, like a master, a realized human being, that's something else. That's very rare. And the best, the best, most insightful, most realized human beings, they're not getting up and blabbermouthing about it. I mean, there's a job here for it. There's a, there's a job for the people like me to get up and talk about these things. But the real beautiful people, the really amazing people, they're not talking about it. They, they would never, never in a million years develop this teacher's voice, this radio voice, this feeling of I need to put out and put words to all these things I've said, all these things I've experienced, all these things I've discovered. It's, it's very rare. There's a lot more... Well, I don't know. Maybe there's there's a lot more people. I mean, you can think of it this way. You can think like there's so many people out there talking and they don't know what they're talking about and they don't have their own actualization and they're not enlightened. So there's so many gurus out there that aren't real. They're not deep. They're not authentic. And they're not realized themselves. I can see that. I can see how that's a thing that could that's a feeling that could easily come up. That's sometimes easily come up in me. It's like, 
no one's the real deal. Give me a real guru. Give me a real master. That's not the real thing. They're just gurus that are fake. They're not, they're not deep enough. But then there's the other thing, which is all the, like, the, there's, what's the opposite of that? Which is all the people that are really amazingly realized and deep and they're real masters, but they're not talking. You need to remember that they are out there. Remember that that is the case. But you would never hear from them. You simply would never hear from them. And I mean, for me to offer a helping hand, like, oh my God, there's so much, there's so much in the world that needs help. I mean, who are you to say that I shouldn't be trying? I'm going to try. I am going to put out. Nothing can stop me now because there's so much need for it. And we're going to need more gurus. The more, the better. Speak your truth. Really, we're going to need so many people to be sharing if we need to get everybody up here. If we're going to get everybody to come through, to break out, to dust themselves off, we're going to need all the help we can get. So if I can be a teacher, if I can, if I can be the middleman between us common folk and the enlightened masters or the realized human beings, then so be it. That's maybe that's my job. I'm the middleman creating a job as a <laughs> Well, that's good business, isn't it? Just create yourself as a middleman. <laughs> I don't know. It hasn't paid anything yet, so <laughs> at this stage I'm just doing it for the for the giggles. So yeah, that's that's probably a good place to end. Things all gurus have in common. And as always, I'd ask you to take a few moments to get in touch with your patience again. Become present again. Look around you, what's happening in your room or wherever you are right now. What's the temperature of the air? How does it feel? What's the atmospheric feeling? What are the other sounds, if you can hear through your headphones? How does your body feel? How are your thoughts happening? Let's come back to some quiet and we'll have a few minutes of silence just to meditate for the end, to let these ideas, to let your mind go wherever it needs to go. And that's all I have to say for now.